Hi, I'm Steve Clements, and I have a question. Is white supremacy growing in the United States, both in numbers and politically, and can it be stopped? Let's get to the bottom line. President Joe Biden became the first American leader in history to specifically attack white supremacy in his inauguration speech. By contrast, during a debate with Joe Biden, then-President Trump refused to condemn white supremacists. The idea that America should be made great for white people only? Well, it's been around for more than 150 years, and it's represented by almost 200 different groups around the country today. And we're not just talking about the South. This mentality is widespread in places like New York, in California, Oregon, virtually every corner of the country. As the riots on the United States Capitol on January 6th showed, it's everywhere, in our military, law enforcement, among CEOs, college professors, real estate agents, you name it. Sure, the Department of Homeland Security under the Trump administration added white supremacist extremism to its list of priority threats. But will that do anything? Today, we're talking to two people who've dived deeply into the American white supremacist movement. As an FBI agent in the 1990s, Michael German infiltrated neo-Nazi groups and militia groups. Today, he's a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. He wrote a book on his experiences called Thinking Like a Terrorist, and I highly recommend it. That was turned into a movie by our next guest, film director and writer Daniel Ragusas. The, thr the thriller was called Imperium, and it started Daniel Radcliffe as an FBI agent who dives undercover in the world of neo-Nazis conservative talk show radio hosts, and professional family men who also just happen to sympathize with the white supremacists. By the way, in case you're wondering, the movie is not based in the Confederate South, but it's up there in the northeast of the country, and it's as relevant today as when it came out five years ago. Thanks so much for being with us, uh, gentlemen. Let me start out with you, Michael. If, if, if you know, I you know, read your book around 2007, 2008, Daniel's movie came out in 2016. This is 2021. We saw this insurrection on January 6th. And as part of the flavor of the moment, white supremacists are out there. I would ask you, is it still a clear and present danger today, what you investigated way back when? Sir, sure. It's, it's been a, uh, a persistent threat all along. And, and you know, now that uh, the media and some government entities are starting to look at it, it looks like it's increasing, but this has always been there. And when people ask me about the threat moving forward, I say it's exactly what it was on January 5th, 2021, and January 5th, 2011, and, and January 5th, 1999. This has been persistent part of our culture, and the violence has been uh, not exactly ignored, but not, not addressed in a, in a systematic way. Thank you for that, Daniel. When I saw your film first five years ago, and then I watched it again recently, it just hit me in my gut. And I'm saying, oh, my God, you were, you were just way ahead of everybody in terms of, of getting a snapshot, if you will, of this virulence that was going on, you know, in, in our suburban neighborhoods. Um, how do you feel about what you did as a film then and as you reflect on what you're seeing unfold uh, around the nation today? Well, just to sort of piggyback off what Mike was saying, I mean, the great discovery that I made when I started looking into this film and researching it, which was I started working on it around 2013, um, was exactly what Mike is saying in the sense that this movement, the adherence to it, the people that have these beliefs, they were always here. It's not like they suddenly sort of magically appeared in 2016 when everybody started paying attention to them. And it's not like 
they're you know appearing now that people are paying more attention to them um it was simply that nobody was really looking at it and so for someone like me or really anybody that cared to look back in 2013 2014 2015 uh you could very easily go online and find online communities um with millions of members um talking about uh, you know everything under the sun so I think for me, when I started working on the move, when I became aware of this community and I became aware of, of the numbers of it and the depth, I felt very strongly that there was, you know, a story there to be told. And I remember even in taking the film around again before 2016, before this all sort of hit into the mainstream, everyone was sort of like, well, you know, uh, Mike German's cases, were they back in the 1950s? Like, this isn't really a thing anymore. So I think what's been happening is just there's been a sort of awakening and an awareness process where people have come to understand what's always been out there and and what is is there today just as mike said as it was one year ago 10 years ago etc you know um thank that you know one of the things i opened the show with today was talking about president biden's condemnation of white supremacists um donald trump when he had an opportunity to to condemn white supremacy didn't do that but we'll leave that aside for a moment but let's listen to President Biden's comments. Now, a rise of political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism that we must confront and we will defeat. So, Michael, I want to ask you bluntly, this is the president of the United States talking about this. For as long as I've known you, and I need to acknowledge it's been for a very long time, you've been on this beat. You have been concerned about the blind spots in our law enforcement, the, the negligence, the dereliction of responsibility in following and taking these white supremacist and neo-Nazi movements seriously. Are you comforted by what President Biden has said, and do you believe that what President Biden has laid out uh, is an inflection point in this story? Uh, I certainly think it's important for the president to acknowledge that, and I think that that was a, a primary opportunity to do that in a way that was going to get this kind of attention uh, to the issue. Um, I, I think it's easy to present white supremacists and far-right militancy as something that's on the fringe of our society, uh, that that is, you know, the, the skinhead with the swastika on his neck, and not really recognize how deeply woven white supremacy is throughout our society, in fact, all of our institutions. And that's why we have so many racial disparities in, in pretty much any category you could look at. And, and that part of what we have to deal with, I think, is going to be much harder. You know, law enforcement should focus on addressing the violence, and that's their job. Uh, but it's for the rest of us to address how, how white supremacy is still infecting our society. Well, thank you for that. Daniel, let me ask you a, a similar question. You know, Michael's been out there writing these reports for the Brennan Center. I've been reading them lately. He says, look, the law enforcement doesn't, many law enforcement uh, groups don't have even prohibitions on affiliating or joining white supremacist groups or some of these groups that are out there. I guess when your film came out and you know, your name is now tagged to this line of inquiry in the country, are you, um, do you find yourself being targeted at all by, by police groups, by law enforcement groups that think that you've kind of opened a Pandora's box, Daniel? I mean, th thankfully, no, that hasn't been my experience, but it was sort of one of the things that Mike brought to my attention early on was this overlap between, 
you know, I can't remember what the exact numbers are, but they're incredibly high and disturbing numbers of people both in the military and law enforcement organizations. Again, Mike knows this much better than I do, um, who either have been affiliated with white supremacist groups or who know people that have. Um, and I think the great lesson that I learned from Mike and the thing that I tried to portray in the film is exactly what he was talking about in the sense that there are... We have uh, a, a very sort of stereotypical notion of what a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi is and looks like, and that the reality is that's just sort of a very visual tip of the iceberg. And in fact, in today's world, even within the hardcore adherence of the movement, people more and more are trying to distance themselves from those kinds of symbols, but their beliefs and their activities and their practices are exactly the same. And so these people exist at all sort of levels of our society. They exist in suburban communities. They exist in, among highly educated communities. Um, and I think that's what was so shocking to me back then. And I think it's a little less shocking today to people, mm. but I still don't mm. think that people really fully understand the degree to which these belief systems and ideologies really exist among you know, large swaths of the population that are educated and you know, all the rest of it. So, so Michael, uh, Daniel sort of describing you you're educating us, but one of the things that comes out in the film about the character playing you, you know, Harry Potter's Daniel Radcliffe, is that this individual has the knack and the ability to be empathetic with those uh, 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 folks that, that want to create violence, that want to create a, uh, a race war, that are celebrating Hitler. And, and I guess my question to you is, what is it in you that has given you insights into thinking like a domestic terrorist, into thinking like these people? What is that bridge that many other uh, others of us don't have or don't understand? Um, it, it, you know, I, I think that the experience that I had working with these people who otherwise were normal in every kind of way and, and ordinary, except that they saw themselves actively at war with American society, uh, and were willing to engage in criminal conduct to further their advantage in the war, uh, made me realize that this was not some, some fringe on the border of our society, that this actually was part of our society, and we have to understand it that way. And you know, as an FBI agent working undercover, my job was to focus on people who are engaged in criminal activity to further their cause. but. Far more of them, you know, there are far more neo-Nazis out there than neo-Nazis who will commit crime. And I think that distinction is really the important one that has been lost since 9-11. There were a lot of hardcore Nazis who, who saw who I was hanging out with when I was undercover and would say, hey, you know, you're a smart young guy. Why are you hanging out with those idiots? Those, those idiots are going to get you arrested. They're going to get you locked up. Come with us. We produce a newsletter. Uh, we, uh, uh, you know, can run you for office. We can we can put a tie on you and run you for a school board. Uh, you know, don't hang around with those idiots. Well, from a law enforcement perspective, those people are fine. I don't I don't spend time with them. I need to go focus on on the criminals. But understanding how that part of the white supremacist movement still has purchase in our political in our politics is really important to understand if we want to. Uh, address this problem holistically throughout our society. Let me share with you both some numbers that, that um, I think are interesting about what some Americans are looking at when they look at the future of the country. Some embrace the diversity, some don't. But if you look at 
uh, those that say, I prefer to live in a community with people who come from diverse cultures. Let's look at this graph. 78% uh, of Democrats say that they uh, are turned on by that, 45% of Republicans. Let's take another look. If you look at the, the question of our country has made the changes needed to give black Americans equal rights with white Americans, that means the job is done. The white community says 49% believe that. Black community, 11%. Um, if you flip that around, you say racism is built into the American economy, the government, and the education system. And you look at that, the white community says only half of that. The black community, 83%, feels and sees that systemic racism. I guess my point here is when you look at those dimensions, uh, half of the white community is, is not on board with further steps of diversification. And I think that, that when you kind of look at this other question out there, that by the year 2045, 50% uh, of the electorate will be um, non-white voters. So you're going to have the, the uh, uh, I guess, the minority majority uh, emerge at that point. So I guess my question to you, gentlemen, is when you look at that and you look at the anxieties people have, we're talking about white supremacists today, but if you look at people who are concerned about immigration or they're worried about you know, losing their jobs broadly, or the shifts because there feels like there's zero-sum tension uh, sometimes between races. I guess my question to you, Daniel, as a filmmaker, as a conceptualizer, you know, as somebody who I think by shining a light on this, you're also interested in how, how do you get Americans to embrace diversity and to not have the fear that they do that somehow they're going to lose their, their standing in society um, as the, the culture becomes more multiracial, more multiethnic? I mean, if I had the answer to that, it's a very, very <laughs> difficult question, you know. Um, and I think that, I think that one of the good byproducts of all of this that's happened in the last several years is it has allowed us to at least understand that the things that you're talking about are what lie uh, beneath all of this, right? That even even a neo-Nazi, and that was the great education process for me, is operating from a point of view of grievance in the sense that they think that they are the victim. They think. You know, that they, as crazy as it sounds, they think that they are being exterminated by Jewish interests. You know, it's, it's a conspiracy theory. It's crazy. But the point is that the emotional content of it is I'm being victimized. People are trying to exterminate me and my family. People are trying to wipe me out. Now, that's the most extreme version of it, right? But there are lesser versions of that. I'm being marginalized. I'm not getting a fair shake. I'm, you know, I'm being discriminated against all the rest of these things that characterize, I think, a lot of the people who have the views that ju you just showed in those slides. And so while I don't necessarily, you know, know how to fix it, I, I do, I believe, at least from the perspective that I come at these things from, that at least understanding the mindset of these people, at least being in touch with the fact that they feel that, you know, that these, that they don't, are not getting a fair shake, don't have opportunities, whatever it is, that's part of it. And so, you know, how we address that and how we effectively communicate to them what's actually going on, that I don't have an answer to, but I think, you know, we're at least growing to understand the, the phenomenon and the psychology behind it better. And I think that's at least, that's at least progress in one arena. You know? Thank you. Michael, one of the things I've been trying to get my head around, I've interviewed on this show Dr. Cornell West, uh, also Reverend William J. Barber, who these are very uh, important black leaders in the country, and they talk about in their equation of inclusion and people who need help, uh, they both say we need to take care of the white community who's poor too at the lower end of the economic ladder. That that's a vital part of getting 
social justice and civic justice in the right place. I guess my question is, you know, in 2016, I interviewed Joe Biden, and he said the Democratic Party had become a party of snobs, liberal elites, uh, in a way, and that that needed to be fixed. Do you think there is a strategy from what you know about de-radicalization, about how do you, you know, undo some of what you see out there? I'd just love to know as a law enforcement person who dealt with human beings, do you find, and, and I, I, again, not to, to blow the ending of the film for folks, and I should tell you, everybody go out and look, you know, watch Imperium, but there is a scene that I think I can talk about that won't blow it, of a young man who finds his way out of this. How do you get more young men to, in this, in this particular case, de-radicalized? Uh, so I, I have trouble with this concept of radicalization because it suggests some irrationality where uh, that's not actually proven by the, the empirical studies of people who actually commit political violence. And, uh, you know, they're not brainwashed. They're, they're not overcome in their reason. They've just chosen a particular path. And, um, you know, again, we have to make sure that we're addressing the right thing. I think it's very important to uh, have an equitable society for that goal, right? Mm -hmm. that, that there's economic justice and social justice uh, as, as well as, as racial justice. Um, but that's not, you know, it, it's not that, that poor white people are joining these groups, mm. right? People went to that uh, uh, attack on the Capitol who flew there in private jets, right? This is, this is more deeply woven throughout our society. So we have to understand what our media culture is doing that is pitting Americans against one another and how politicians are using those divisions to secure their own power base, right? Mm. I mean, we've often heard of racist dog whistles in our politics. Well, Donald Trump, you know, with, with some media outlets that promoted him uh, found a way to make those dog whistles a bullhorn and it, and it made a lot of this activity more public and more acceptable to be part of these militant wings of the party and still be accepted into the mainstream political conversation. And I think that's what's very dangerous. That's different. Powerful. Uh, Daniel, this will be an unfair question to you, but if you were to update Imperium to make it in light of what we're seeing play out on our you know, TV screens, have you thought a little bit about what else you would bring to this this set of visuals, the set of stories that you've told, um, if you were to bring it into today? Well, I'll answer that. I also want to piggyback off what Mike was saying, too, right, in the sense I think that point of radicalization is, is really important, and it's borne out by what we just saw, i.e., that we saw that a huge group of people from all kinds of backgrounds, if provided with information that we know is false but that they believed, would engage in activities that, you know, are, are, are unthinkable, would break into buildings, would be willing to commit violence, would do all sorts of things. So, you know, in, in, in that way, again, we at least saw on public display what that thought process looks like and that there are a lot of people, if they are convinced uh, that certain things are going on, they will, out of their own sense of justice and rightness and standing up to tyranny and all these other things, they will, they will do, you know, terrible things. So. Um, you know, I think that in terms of, you know, updating the movie, 
It's it's interesting because it's a movement that is always in flux. I mean, all sorts of groups that are in the headlines now, everything from the Proud Boys on down, were not really part of the equation, at least not that I was aware of back in, you know, five years ago. Um, there There is a lot of change, and especially since, you know, ironically, I think there's parts of the movement that are very media savvy and that are very focused on their image and changing that image and how they get on the news and how they get more airtime. And so... It's, uh, you know, a lot of it would be looking at how it continually, unfortunately, is able to rebrand itself, get more media access, get more attention, try to mainstream itself, you know, and that and that's the huge opportunity, I think, that the last several years, it's like what Mike was saying, has, has given these folks, is that there are all kinds of opinions that are either becoming mainstream or even if they're not mainstream, much more out there and, and, and apparently socially acceptable to talk about them there were a few years ago. So I, that's the biggest change that I see. This is not in the shadows anymore, and I think that has a ripple effect all throughout the movement, you know. Thank you. Michael, one of the things that struck me again about your stories and your work really since 2007 is, you know, trying to focus on the blind spots of the FBI, on the blind spots of law enforcement. And, uh, you know, to that end, one of the uh, things I would just ask you is, you know, what do you think the temperature is today of these movements? And then secondly, when you listen to legislators, they also talk about the protests after George Floyd's murder, the Black Lives Matter movements. You know, and when you look back in history, the Black Panthers or others are more organized, you know, efforts at, in some areas around, you know, race and some sort of domestic terrorism from decades ago. I guess in terms of not having blind spots in our discussion is do you have any concern that there is a, you know, rising organized uh, violence group on the other side of this equation of, of those that are trying to, you know, be wrapped around BLM movements? And I want to ask this because that comes up a lot in Congress. Sure. I, I think there there is a blind spot in that, the, you know, the FBI remains a, a mostly white, mostly male uh, organization. And if you look at how white males voted over the last two elections, you have a pretty good idea of what uh, the vast majority of FBI agents would would believe. Um, and particularly when you, after 9-11, the idea was we had to unleash the FBI. And so we reduced what are called criminal predicates. And this is the level of evidence you need to start an investigation. So we removed these criminal predicates with the idea that we, we want the FBI to act, you know, with, with less evidence. But when you do that, you tend have a tendency, and this is true throughout the history of the FBI, you know, when, when a white male FBI agent looks out on the horizon about who might be a threat later, these violent white supremacists who've been part of our society for decades aren't seen right. as the big problem. It's some new and emerging issue that tends to come from uh, a space that is uncomfortable for that FBI agent, right? right? So it's easy to look at Black Lives Matter movement or the Standing Rock water protectors and think that that is extremely dangerous, even though if you evaluate them objectively by the evidence, they're not nearly as violent as, as white supremacists or far-right militia groups. Um, so there is a tendency to view them, and in fact, the FBI created a designated uh, terrorism category called black identity extremism uh, that tried to manufacture a terrorist threat out of the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. Um, so, so I think it is a problem. 
My concern with those groups actually becoming violent is the lack right. of law enforcement attention to white supremacist violence. Well, gentlemen, we're going to have to we're going to have to leave it there today. This is a discussion I could have for a very long time, and I think it's a, a you know a very real and present struggle in the country right now. Uh, Dan Ragusis, you you know began uh, looking at this way way uh, early, and and Mike German, uh, you did this even more. So, writer and director Daniel Ragusis, former FBI agent Michael German, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dave. So, what's the bottom line? Former President Bill Clinton called racism America's constant curse. And history is clear. Every time men have to share power, whether with women or with any minorities, there's a rise in intolerance. These groups prey on fear and they talk about white genocide. And their followers are not just the poor and the uneducated. It's very important for white supremacy to be taken seriously by the Biden administration as a threat to national security. But what will a domestic terrorism label actually do, even though it's high time? Will it just drive these attitudes underground without tackling the root causes? If that happens, this whites versus anybody different mentality will continue to be America's constant curse. And that's the bottom line.